Father in heaven, here we are. We're going to open this book. And it's a book of life and it's a book of risk for us. It feels like sometimes in danger, but also security and peace. And so we pray that you would reveal yourself to us through it, that you would take away any distractions that we might have this morning uh, from focusing attention, whatever issues may have come in with us, we pray that um, it would enable us, even in the midst of those issues, uh, to think about you and that your word would penetrate through our thoughts to our hearts, uh, deep into our souls, that you may be glorified by a group of people that desire to follow after you. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to Joshua in chapter 5. Joshua in chapter 5, please. I'm going to read this chapter. Joshua chapter 5. Hear the word of God. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over. Their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At that time the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haraloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war who had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt, though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you, and so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. Well, the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal. They kept uh, the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruits of the land of Canaan that year. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. And now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped him and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now remember, the question that we're asking in every one of these passages that we come to is what does this passage preach to us? In other words, what's the message here for us? Now obviously... 
the Israelites have crossed over the Jordan. That is, they're now in the area of this land that had been uh, promised to them. Since the land is already occupied by other nations, other peoples, they're going to have to take it. It's not going to be given from those people in that sense. They're going to have to take it, and perhaps even uh, by force. So the question is, what will give them confidence to do that? Now, they've had some confidence builders already. That is, God has come directly to Joshua and he said, this is the land that I promised your fathers. Whatever you put your feet, that will be yours. And I'm going to be with you. I'm not going to leave you. You're going to be successful. So be courageous and in a sense, go get it. And they commanded the people then, saying, this is the land that's been promised to you. Spies were sent out. When those spies came back, they said, oh, piece of cake. These people are afraid of us. Every time we mention our names, the people of Israel, they know what God did at the Red Sea. They know what God did uh, at the, uh, in, in defeating these kings. Therefore, um, they melt every time they hear of us. And then the great miraculous event where, where God stopped the flow of the River Jordan and dried up the riverbed so they could walk across. And he gave them 12 stones to pile up so that... They could look to those stones and remember, God's the one who brought us here, and God's the one who will acquire this land for us. And then, of course, in the very midst was this box called the Ark of the Covenant, and it represented for them the very presence of God, the power of God, and the promises of God. And so all of that would be great confidence builders for them. And so now, what would be the final preparation? Well, there seems like three things had to happen before then they could enter the land, before they could come up against Jericho. One is that the whole army of men had to be circumcised. Two is they needed to celebrate Passover. And three, they needed a visit from the commander of the army of the Lord. Those three things happened before they were able to enter into Jericho. Now, you may say, why these three well, getting a visit from the army, uh, the commander of the army is probably a good thing, although we thought Joshua was the real commander, but who's this other guy? And then celebrating Passover is a good thing. Why not? But why before they entered into Jericho? And while I've promised certain people to be very delicate on this matter, you wonder why it is that he would circumcise the army. I mean, it doesn't seem to be a very good military tactic to enter into the land of your enemies... And then, slow down your army. <laughs> right? You know, take some days off where they're completely incapacitated from fighting, which is why they're there in the first place. So you wonder, why those three things? Well, the answer is, because the preparation that they needed in order to go into the land was not physical, not military, but spiritual. Because you see, their entering into the land was not a political issue from Israel's perspective. These weren't Israel's enemies. These were God's enemies. And he was preparing to bring judgment upon them. Now, a great deal is said about uh, these battles in the Old Testament because they're rather bloody and awfully uh, ruthless. In fact, I must confess to you, on Saturday, or last Sunday evening, I was, I was flying out to go to Detroit for some meetings and things. And it was, of course, September the 10th. So we have all of these, uh, all of these um, uh, things going on because of September 11th and the recognition of all of that. 
And of course, I had to check my bag because I was, I was dangerous because I had toothpaste. And so uh, I checked my bag, and I didn't bring a briefcase. I just brought some books to read on the plane and in the hotel when I'm not at the meeting. So I grabbed one of the books that I brought in order to read on the plane. And it didn't dawn on me until I was going through inspection that the title of the book, because it was about the book of Joshua, the title of the book was, Show Them No Mercy. <laughs> Four views of God and the Canaanite genocide. And the cover picture was a desert, as it would be in the Middle East, with a big skull on it. And here I am, trying to board a plane after checking my toothpaste. Um, on September the 10th, and so, you know, I took off my shoe. I put the book down, face down in the little thing, hoping that the x-ray machine wouldn't pick up the title. And uh, put my shoes on top and my wallet and everything, piled it up and got through just fine, but did feel a little conspicuous uh, on the plane. So I folded it over so no one could actually see the cover. Um, but we think about these battles. And we think of them in light of the fact that God has told us not to steal. In fact... He's told us not to covet what belongs to another. And yet he's telling Israel to go in and take this land that's occupied by somebody else. In fact, they should desire to have this land and see it as their own. So how can that square with God God has commanded? And not only that, God has commanded us not to kill. And yet, many situations as they enter this land, they're to kill everybody. In some situations, even all the cattle and so forth. Destroy the whole city. And so how is it that that squares with what we know to be true about God? And again, the reason that it squares is because this isn't a political battle. This isn't Israel against other nations. This is God against those who have rebelled against him. Do you remember that when God first called Abraham, I won't read this, but way back in Genesis chapter 12, He said to Abraham, I want you to leave the place where you're now living. I want you to leave your home. And I want you to go to a land that I'm going to give you. So Abraham does that and he goes to this land and and he sees this land. And then God makes a promise to him concerning that land. And we will look at this. This is in Genesis in chapter 15 and verse 12. Um, It says, and the sun was going down. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. He became Abraham, as God changed his name later. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possession. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So capture this scene. Abram's asleep because he doesn't do anything to receive the promises of God's but rest. So he's asleep. And so God gives him promises about this land. But he also gives him a, t- gives him a timetable. He says what's going to happen is that this land is for your descendants. But before they get back here... They're going to be enslaved. But don't worry, I'm going to bring judgment upon that nation that enslaves them. He's going to bring judgment first because they enslaved God's people, but also because he's bringing judgment against all of the gods of Egypt. They worshipped other gods, and so he brings judgment against all of those gods. 
And then he says, I'm going to bring them out after 400 years, and then they're going to possess this land. Notice, end of verse 16, for the iniquity of the Amorites. Now, that word Amorites, we saw it in Joshua chapter 5, sort of a generic term for all the people that lived there. They could be Amorites, they could be Canaanites, whoever lived there. That was just sort of the generic term in the days of Abraham, all those people would have been known as Amorites. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. In other words, he's saying to Abraham, you could have this land right now, but they're not depraved enough to deserve the judgment that's coming. Their iniquity isn't complete yet. But in 400 years, their iniquity will be complete. And at that point in time, then I'm going to destroy them as a judgment upon them because there are none, there will be none there who are righteous, none there who believe in me, none there who will ever come to me, so judgment will be ready and ripe for them at that period of time in 400 years. And in the days of Joshua, that 400 years has come. Thus, the fullness of the iniquity of the Amorites and the Canaanites and all the other ites that live in that particular location has now become full. Now you might ask the question, well, what would happen if there were 50 righteous people among the Canaanites? Or 45? Or 40? Or 30? Or 20? Or 10? Would God still destroy them? Well, we know the answer to that question because those questions have already been asked. Turn to Genesis chapter 18. I won't read this passage, but just so you know I'm not lying. It's right there beginning in verse 22. Because there was a time that God came to Abraham and he said, I'm going to destroy Sodom. And so Abraham began to think about that. So he went to God and he said, God, would you really destroy Sodom if there are 50 righteous people there? And God said, of course not. I wouldn't. How about if there were 45? Would, would, you, would, you, would you destroy them for just a lack of five? And God said, no, 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 I wouldn't destroy them if there were 45. How about 40? How about 30? How about 20? How about 10? And in each measure, God said, no, I, I wouldn't destroy them if there were even 10 righteous people there. Why? Because God is just. And you remember what happened in that story. He plucked out Lot because Lot was a righteous man. There were fewer than 10, but there was one. And even in the midst of that, God was saying, I'm not going to destroy this city without first taking out the righteous ones. Uh, we saw that in the flood with Noah, God was going to bring judgment upon the earth. But there was one who had found favor, found grace in the eyes of God. And it was Noah, a righteous man. And so what did God do? He brought the judgment, but he saved Noah and his family. Even in this situation, even in the situation with Jericho, we know what's going to happen in Jericho because we read the precursor in chapters 2 and 3. We know that Rahab and her family are going to be saved even though God's going to destroy all the other people. Because why? She was the one who believed. And so even though the fullness of the Canaanites, Amorites was already complete of their iniquity. Still, there was one who was willing to follow after God. And so he saved her and he saved her family. But everybody else was going to be destroyed. This was to be the very judgment of God. But then you might say, still doesn't seem fair. Because weren't the Israelites just as sinful as the Amorites? Weren't they just as sinful 
as the Canaanites. I mean, we just came through the wilderness period of the Israelites when it proved that they didn't always trust in God, they didn't always obey him. That's why they had to be there for 40 years. They weren't able to enter into the land. And so, so, so why did they get to be spared in the midst of this judgment? It doesn't seem fair. And in one sense, you're right. It isn't about fairness. It's about grace. In fact, God even said that to the Israelites. Deuteronomy. In chapter 9, for instance, in verse 4, as Moses is telling the people about preparation for entering into the land, puts it like this. He says, Don't say in your hearts, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, that is, all the people who occupied the land, that it's because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land, whereas... It is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going to into possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations. The Lord your God is driving them out before you, and that he may confirm the word that the Lord sw- swore to your forefathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this land to possess because of your righteousness, for you're a stubborn people. So he's saying, you're right, it's not because of your righteousness that this is happening. It's because of their wickedness. But then we ask, but why do the Israelites have the privilege of being the ones to live while the others die? And that answer is given in Deuteronomy in chapter 6. I'm sorry, Deuteronomy in chapter 7, verse 6. He says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping his oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the house of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. The answer, of course, is that the reason that Israel is being spared is that the Lord loved them. And the reason that he loved them was because he loved them. He chose to love them, and they became his. In that sense. They don't deserve it any more than anyone else does. It was simply grace to them. If that doesn't remind you of something in your own experience, then you're dead. Right? He chose to love them. And that's why they were spared. But it's interesting. As you read through the Old Testament, you find when Israel was in disobedience, uh, they forfeited the land as well. Other nations came against them and drove them out of the land when they were living unrighteously. But God always spared a remnant. And he always spared a remnant because he had made a promise to Abraham that out of your seed, from your seed, all the nations, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. And so he spared this remnant so that one could come from his seed to bless all the nations of the world. And that very one who came was Jesus. So now they're preparing to enter. So he asked the question, well... What do they need to do now in order to enter the land? First thing that Joshua is commanded to do 
is to circumcise the army, circumcise all the men. And you say, well, why is that so? And the answer is because it hadn't been done yet. Notice verse 5 of Joshua chapter 5. He writes, though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. So you get the picture. Uh, Everybody leaving Israel had the sign of the covenant, all the men, uh, and that covered the whole community. Uh, Yet during the wilderness time, none of the children born during that 40-year period, none of the boys born during that 40-year period carried upon them the sign of the covenant. None of those boys uh, were circumcised. Verse 6, For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. Thus, that's what it means in verse 2, to circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. That doesn't mean uh, that there can be a man who's circumcised twice. Not possible. But let's renew this Ritual. Let's renew giving the sign of the covenant to the sons of Israel. And so it was the second time it was doing it again in that sense. So the question why? I mean, what's so important about circumcision for these Israelite men that would necessitate them being circumcised prior to bringing judgment through God to these nations and receiving that which was promised to them? Why is that a necessary thing? Why couldn't a group of uncircumcised Israelites go and do that? Well, the reason is because this was a sign and a seal of God's covenant with them. And for them to be identified with God, they had to have this sign and seal as God had given to them. It's a sign in the sense that it points to something. It points to God's promises to them that they belong to him. And it's a seal, meaning it's, 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 it authenticates the promise. You know, if you get a, a letter in the mail and it comes from the governor, it should have the state seal on it. And you look at that seal and you go, okay, this isn't one of my friends goofing off. This isn't one of my friends just trying to, you know, pull something over on me. This is really from the governor because it has the governor's seal on it. And the governor is the only one who can use that seal. And so when God says, when we say this is a seal of God's covenant, we mean what this signifies is really true, that you belong to me. And you may think, why did God give them such a funny sign? I mean, why this? Why not like a tattoo or, or, you know, something else, baptism even? Well, why did he give them this? Well, if you think about covenant signs... We think about the sign, for instance, given to Noah. Everybody knows the sign that was given to Noah. It's a rainbow. Why a rainbow? Well, at least this, that the covenant made with Noah was a covenant made with the whole earth. God was promising that he'd never do this flood thing like this again. And so he gave this sign to the whole earth that was the whole earth concerning nature, and gave them the sign of the rainbow. A thing in the sky. Everybody can see. Everybody's reminded. But the covenant with Abraham was a private kind of thing. The covenant with Abraham was for 
Abraham and his descendants. And so in that regard, circumcision is a private thing. Circumcision as saying, this is for your descendants, those who come from your seed. Ah, oh, all right. We see it. And so he says, now you need to be circumcised, these men, because this is a spiritual thing that you're facing. It isn't the military issue. It was never a military issue with Israel. It was never how strong their army was versus how strong the other armies were. You remember with Gideon, he started out with 30,000-something men. And God says, too many. You look too strong, so I'm going to get you down to just a minimal hundreds of guys. Because it's never been about the strength of your army. It's always been about your spiritual condition. And the question for them is, do you understand what it means to identify with me? For instance, Genesis chapter 17. Abraham gets this sign of the covenant from God. Verse 9. He says, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant to you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money or any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is, brought, who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And so those who are circumcised, he's saying, listen, you're the one who are heirs to the promise. If you're not, you're cut off. You're outside of this covenant promise. So he says everybody then brought in to Israel from the outside needed to be circumcised. It wasn't just an Israelite thing, but it was, it was an everything for people who would hold to the covenant of God. The men and their sons, the men and their infant boys. But like everything else with God, this wasn't simply an external thing. That is, the sign itself did not effect the promises. Okay? I know it's early in the morning to hear this kind of stuff, but hang in there with me. The sign itself did not effect the promises. It did not bring the promises into reality in their lives. We know that because of what just happened in the wilderness. All of the people who left Egypt were circumcised, the men. But none of them inherited the promises. Why? Because they did not believe. Because they did not obey. Because they did not follow after God. They didn't trust in Him. When they, when they got to see the land, they said, can't go there. We'll be defeated. And so He says, you don't get to go. So even though He swore that land to their forefathers, and even though they carried on their bodies the sign of the promise, they didn't inherit it. Why? Because they didn't believe. Because you see, this sign of circumcision was to point not only the promises of God, but to point to their own hearts. And so Moses would say time and time again, you must be circumcised in the heart. Meaning, what this signifies, 
must be embraced. What this signifies must be believed. And what it signifies is that you're an heir to the promise of God. Believe it. And so that would be preached to the children growing up. You have in your body the sign of the covenant. Believe it. Act like one. Live like one for whom these promises are true. Because these promises are true. Believe it and live it. For the adults who had the sign of the covenant and the whole community as they're blessed by the sign of the covenant on these men, believe it, live like this as one who follows after God and these promises will be yours. That's why when Paul, the apostle in the New Testament, was speaking about circumcision, he said that Abraham's circumcision was a sign and a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. It was a faith thing, always. It was never a mechanical thing, never just a physical thing. It was a faith thing. Believe it. Trust in him. Walk with him. And if you don't, you'll be cut off. So before they could enter the land, before they could act as God's agents, before they could receive the promises of God, they had to identify with the promises of God, and they had to say, yes, We are God's people. And then they had to celebrate, got to celebrate, Passover. It's an amazing thing that it was almost, or perhaps exactly, 40 years to the day that they had left Egypt. And that they had left Egypt that night that they celebrated this Passover. And now they've entered the land just a few days ago, just long enough to make preparation. And here now, four days after they entered the land, they're celebrating this Passover meal. And what would they think about when they would celebrate this Passover meal? They would realize at that moment in time that they're about to enter all of these lands of the Canaanites, most quickly Jericho. By the way, Joshua didn't fight the Battle of Jericho. We'll get to that next week. But um, they're about to enter into Jericho to take it over, to judge them, if you will, bring the very judgment of God against them. And yet they themselves are not going to be judged. How are they going to escape the judgment? They know exactly how they were going to escape the judgment, especially as they celebrated that Passover meal. Because they had escaped a judgment 40 years before when Egypt was being judged, when the, when the firstborn sons of Egypt were being killed by the judgment of God, the angel of judgment, the angel of death, the Israelites survived. How? Because one had been taken in their place. And here they are again. And before they can enter the land, they've got to realize the reason you're escaping this judgment isn't because you're more righteous than they. It's because I've chosen you and I've loved you and I'm going to give you this one to take, in your, to take your place. And I'm going to kill this lamb And you're going to go into this land under the blood of this lamb. And then Joshua sees this man. First, you've got to wonder what Joshua was thinking about this man. Here he just shows up. He's got this big sword. And, And so Joshua then, probably out of some measure of fear, asked a very, very reasonable question. Are you for us or are you for them? Because if you're for them, we're in trouble. But if you're for us, then that's really good. And so Joshua says, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And this man that he sees says, no. 
And, you know, if I'm Joshua, I'm thinking it was an either-or kind of question, sir. You know, one or the other. Can't be no. Uh, pick A or B. Uh, but no doesn't fit. But, of course, it was no. Because he says, I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. And you wonder if that moment in time Joshua started getting the picture. Because in a sense, this commander is saying, I'm not for either one of you. I'm for the Lord. I'm his commander. And then Joshua worshipped him. He was more than a man, more than an angel. And so he says, what do you want me to do? I says, the first thing you need to do is understand where you're standing. Understand where you live. You live on ground that's holy. Take off your shoes. You might say, how does this all come down to us? How do we think about this today? Well, two questions, really, I suppose. One is, how is it that we expect to escape judgment? On what basis do we expect to escape judgment? Secondly, How is it that we have any confidence at all? And I don't want to over-spiritualize this. But how is it that that we confront the particular issues, battles in our own lives, the enemies that exist before us, the, the land that we're to take, the inheritance that we're to receive? How is it that we receive that in the midst of trouble and difficulties and, and all of that? For instance, how, how, do, we, how do we go about dealing with life in the midst of, of our own worries and anxieties. How do we deal with those? How do we deal with the loneliness that comes, the relational issues that come in the context of our lives, the financial issues, deal with unemployment and just lack? How do we deal with um, issues of illness? How do we deal with issues of bodies deteriorating? How do we deal with issues of grief? How do we deal with all of the things that are true in the context of life? How do we deal with the internal struggles of our own pride, our lack of gentleness, our impatience, our unkindness, our lack of love and lack of forgiveness that we give to others? How do, how do we deal with all of those as we see what God has promised to us as His, as His people? How do we deal with all those? How do we, how do we attack them? On what basis? What's the foundation for all of that? And then, of course, as I mentioned, how do we deal with that ultimate thing of death and and judgment? The scripture says that it's appointed to a man once to die. And then the judgment, how do we deal with that? How do we have any confidence at all that we're going to escape that? And I think we think through the same preparation that that these people in Joshua's day uh, experienced. For us, it's not circumcision. The new covenant sign is baptism. The question for us is, do we embrace it? Do we identify with all that is signified by baptism. You see, the new covenant sign that we receive is this water that represents for us, that's a sign of cleansing. Do we identify with the cleansing that comes through the blood of Christ? This water of baptism signifies for us identifying with Jesus in his death and resurrection. Do we do that? Do we identify with Jesus in his death and resurrection? This water of baptism represents for us 
belonging to God and being adopted as his son, as his daughter, as his child. Do we identify with that? Do we say, yes, this is the very foundation of my life. I belong to God because of the blood of Christ, because he's cleansed me. This water of baptism represents for us being sanctified, being purified, being holified by the work of God through his spirit in us, forming Christ in us, conforming us to his image. Do I identify with that? Do I say, yes, that's who I am. I'm that kind of person. One who identifies with Christ, not only in his life, death, and resurrection, but also in his character, in, in his work. Do I identify with him in that regard? It, this water of baptism represents for us our ultimate glorification of being with him. Is that my identity? See, these Israelite men were to identify with what circumcision signified, which was that they belonged to God and they were to inherit these promises. Do we identify with the truth that's signified for us in baptism? We give this sign of this covenant to our children. And as we raise them, we're to teach them in such a way to tell them, you're to identify with Christ. These promises, as Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, are for you and your children and all who are far off. And so these children of ours, they receive the sign of the covenant and we say to them, this is how you're to be. This is true. You're to live as one who trusts in the one who made these promises because these promises are true and the one who made them is trustworthy. So believe in him. Live like that. For those who, who weren't baptized as children but baptized as believers, what you're identifying with in your baptism at that moment in time is God. That he has cleansed you, that he has adopted you, that you belong to him, that his promises are yours. And the question is, do we live like that? Do we face all of our problems, all of our anxieties and all the issues of life and all of that with this preparation of foundation that says, I belong, I belong to God. It's a great story about Martin Luther he has all these stories about being attacked by the devil. And I don't know if he was just extra sensitive or if he was just attacked by the devil more than the rest of us, probably both. When you're Martin Luther, you get attacked by everyone. But he would say that when he was attacked by the devil to sin, he would rise up and say, I'm a baptized man. Now, he didn't believe that his baptism affected anything particular. But what he was saying by that is, you don't know who you're after. You know who you've come to. You've come to one who's been cleansed. You've come to one who belongs to God through Jesus Christ. You're the one who's comes. You've come to one who identifies with the sanctifying power of Jesus. You're the one. You've come to one who's going to be glorified one day. Who's going to be fully in the image of Christ. What do you think you're doing, devil? Coming to me to try to tempt me? I'm a baptized man. And you get a sense that as these people would fight in Jericho or anywhere else, if anyone would come up against them with a sword, they'd have to say, that's all I'm going to say about that, they'd have to say, I'm a circumcised man. I belong to God. Who do you think you're after here? These promises belong to me. I'm not going to be judged. So take your sword aside. And we're to live like that, identify. And then, of course, when we ask ourselves the question, how is it that I'm going to escape this judgment? The answer is here. We see it on the night that Jesus was betrayed. He took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples, and he said, This is my body, which is given for you. 
And in the same way, he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, he gave this to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And so just in the same way that those Israelites on that day outside of Jericho would celebrate the Passover and remember escaping the judgment 40 years ago and now realize what's going to happen as they go in to enter the land, they're going to escape the judgment of God and actually by their presence bring it. If we were to think about Jesus and go, that's it. I'm going to escape it. Not because of my righteousness, but because of his. I'm going to escape it because he died. That I might live. And then he comes to us and we say to him, are you on my side? (laughs) And he graciously says yes. Because you see, if God is for you, who can be against you? I'm the very one who's come now to defend you. So yes, I'm for you, but only because I was for my father and I fought his battle and I won and you're the spoils from my victory. So you belong to me. See, all of life requires this spiritual preparation. Now, we try to prepare our children in various kinds of ways. We give them good educations. We feed them. We house them. We, we exercise them. We, sounds like the horses. We, we, uh, uh, you know, we give them life skills. We, we try to encourage friendships and all those kinds of things. But the primary preparation you see for our children is a spiritual one to teach them. This is who you are. For this is who God is. And in the context of our own lives and our own days, how do we prepare to get up in the morning? How do we prepare to walk through life? It's by remembering whose we are. By knowing what Christ has done and identifying with him and believing him and worshiping him and walking every day barefoot. No shoes, spiritually speaking. Because we know that everywhere we tread is holy. Let's pray, Father in heaven. God, even as we come to this table identifying as believers in Christ, seeing the truth of our baptism, we come to this table And Father, we pray that you would set aside this bread and this juice in such a way that we'd see Jesus and see him clearly and and we'd come to him and feed on him by faith and our faith would increase in him even as we meet with him to know how we're to live and how we're to die. And God, to give us the confidence to live day in and day out, to know that you are with us, that we belong to you. to know Christ that you've died for us so Father we pray that you would bless this moment in our in our lives that this moment would never be a ritual it would be preparation for us preparation to face the minute we leave here preparation to face the rest of the day the rest of the week even the rest of our lives that you would meet us here And that we would know that everywhere we tread is holy. 
because we belong to you. Bless this meal this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Remind you that this table is not the table of Grace Evangelical Presbyterian Church, but it's the table of the Lord. And he invites to it all those who do identify with what is signified in baptism. There is cleansing only through faith in Jesus, only by his blood. And to receive and depend upon Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel, knowing that we ourselves are sinners without hope, except in his sovereign mercy. And he's given us that mercy in Jesus. And it's our desire now to live in such a way that worships him and that walks holy. Let me invite these two sections to come down this aisle to my left, these two aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread and dip it in the cup and say, I live and I will live because I'm a baptized man or woman or child. Please come. Our Sunday school class is coming. I remind you too of our time together on Wednesday evening and most certainly the time tonight, various times tonight. So check with all we're doing in terms of a worshiping congregation and make sure that uh, you're up on all that and attend that which is good for you. The response to the benediction this morning is for us to sing together the doxology. So please receive this as God's benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before his glorious presence and that with great joy. Only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ, whom be glory, dominion, majesty, and power, both now and forevermore. And together, let us sing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow.